Welcome to Founder Journeys. This podcast is showcasing quick and high-impact conversations about the world of entrepreneurship. In each episode, we speak with founders and investors on specific subjects to inspire current and future entrepreneurs. Join our host, Catherine Lockhart, CEO of Propel, as we build a thriving and sustainable tech community together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Founder Journeys. For this episode, I am thrilled to have with me Josh Green, who is co-founder and chief operating officer of Novata, an ESG platform for private markets. Novata was created by a consortium that includes the Ford Foundation, Amadire Network, Hamilton Lane, and S&P Global. Today, Novata supports ESG data collection by private market investors with over a trillion dollars in assets under management. Prior to Novata, Josh co-founded and served as CEO of Penjiva, a supply chain database company that was acquired by S&P Global in 2018. Josh lives in New York with his wonderful wife, Lindsay, and two children, and we are really looking forward to getting his insights and the story of his journey here today. So Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Really, really good to see you again. I've got a couple of questions we want to dive into and really, really excited for your thoughts. So can you tell me a little bit about your career path and why you decided to become a founder? I think it starts with being a kid and really liking to solve problems. That was the thing that I found most interesting, solving problems. As I got a bit older and uh, really during college, I found uh, that I didn't just like solving problems. I also really enjoyed mobilizing other people to to solve problems. You know, had my first shot at starting an organization actually in the political sphere uh, and um, enjoyed it. Uh, Wasn't terribly successful with it, but um, learned a lot. On the professional side, I started down the path of doing management consulting and That was really because I didn't know quite what I wanted to do. And after a couple of years of doing management consulting, uh, I knew that that was not for me, that giving advice to others and then walking away wasn't, um, for me, as satisfying as solving problems and mobilizing people to solve problems. So um, had another experience after consulting, uh, working in an incubator that exposed me to, to startups and I recognized in that moment, yeah, this is this is more for me. So when I went back to grad school, uh, my theory was I was going to leave grad school and start a company. And that's what happened. You know, the story isn't as clean as that, of course, but that was the, the path that ultimately got me to starting my first company, Panchiva. Fantastic. And I love what you said. The path wasn't as clean as that. And, and it never is. For our audience who's predominantly founders, they all have such a different path. So we're, we're excited to explore more about, about yours. So next question for you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that company that you started, Penjiva. And especially, I want to dive in. I know you're passionate about data. That's sort of a passion that you have, and that was part of Penjiva. But can you talk about your excitement for data versus making progress with your customers at the time, the customers and their actual problems? Yeah, so let me me go back uh, to the process of starting Penjiva, because I think it's important context. So 
I told you that I wanted to start a business when, uh, when I finished grad school. And so my theory was I was going to go to school, spend a bunch of time learning, come up with an idea that I was excited about, go build a team and then go do it. And that's kind of what happened, but not in that order. And as I said, it, it wasn't so clean. After a year of being in grad school, I got serious about an idea and started uh, networking to meet people and was introduced to uh, a guy who was at MIT at the time, Jim Pesota. And we really hit it off and we're working on the idea that I had. But after a little while working on the idea, we both reached the conclusion that that idea wasn't very good. And that led to a process of us sitting in basically a little conference room multiple times over the course of many months, working through a bunch of different ideas. And we kept trying and kept trying and kept reaching the same conclusion, which was we didn't like the ideas. Now, two things that I think were really constructive came out of that process. One was that we learned that we really liked working with each other. Two, the process of rejecting all these ideas helped us put our finger on what we were looking for in an idea that we actually would want to pursue, the criteria for evaluating an idea. But none of the ideas that we generated while sitting in that conference room did we actually get excited about. So at that point, after spending many months going through this exercise, candidly, I, I kind of panicked. And I thought, I think I'm going to have to get a real job. And uh -oh. so I did what you were supposed to do in grad school, which is go get an internship. So went to work for a small company called E-Inc. Um, Catherine, do you, have a, do you have an Amazon Kindle? Yes. Yeah. So you know the, the black and white screen that's in the Kindle? Yep. That's E-Inc. technology. Um, really cool technology that, uh, that came out of the MIT Media Lab. Um, E-Inc. was the company that that commercialized that technology. And, and I spent a summer working there. And I did it because I thought I needed to get a real job. And you know, I thought technology is interesting. Why not go work at a, at a cool technology company? And kind of in classic you know, founder form, I, it was only really when I had given up on the idea of starting something that I stumbled into the idea that ultimately would lead to the founding of a company. While I was at E-Inc., uh, my boss at the time asked me to research suppliers that we could work with. And being young, naive, I thought, okay, no problem. I'll just go do some research. Went on Google and as you know, one did at the time and started uh, searching for suppliers, found that there were tons and tons of companies all around the world that were claiming to have the capabilities we needed. But there wasn't a clear way from my perspective to separate the good from the bad. And as I was reflecting on this, I thought, well, that doesn't make sense, right? You know, these are, these, this is a solved problem, helping companies develop reputations, helping companies collect feedback from their customers to establish that they're solid. Why isn't this being applied in the B2B world around supply chain partners? And you know, I'm describing it as if it was an idea that came to me in a light bulb moment. You know, it actually was a more of a process over a couple months. And actually it was in a classroom where it all finally clicked for me when I was listening to a professor talk about 
a family in uh, in Baghdad that helped to facilitate global trade in the 19th century and how they were solving a problem of trust. And I thought, well, that's interesting because that's the same problem that exists today in the world of trade. And yet there have been so many advances. There's so many technology advancements. There are you know, what I would describe as kind of social technology advancements. You know, you think about the reputation system that eBay pioneered, that Yelp then created. Despite all those advances, we still hadn't solved the trust problem in global trade. And I thought, I think there really is something here. When it finally did gel, I reached out to Jim because I had that relationship in place. And I said, I think I got it. And I described the idea. And he wrote back and said, yep, this makes a ton of sense. Let's get going. And what happened over the next year, which was my last year in graduate school, was an effort to to do in kind of an academic way the exercise of of putting together a business plan. And uh, what I would say in in kind of the short-ish version of the story is that what I learned over the course of that year of putting a business plan together in an academic setting was totally thrown out the window after a month of actually trying to build the business after I finished school. You know, it comes back to your question about data. The truth is we weren't starting with data as the focal point of what we were doing. We were starting with a problem, which was the problem of of trust. And the original solution that we had ended up not working at all. It was essentially a, a Yelp for global trade. We were going to collect feedback from companies that had worked with suppliers around the world and then serve up that feedback to buyers of of products and let them use that feedback to distinguish good from bad. All well and good, except nobody provided feedback on their suppliers (laughs) when we we got going. Uh, And so there was a messy process that followed to trying to find a path forward. But it was only, frankly, years later that we began to think of ourselves as a data business. What an incredible buildup. I love some of your comments. What's really resonated with me is the perspective you had on the problem, the problem of trust. It it was a new inspirational moment that you heard uh, about a family talking about something in Baghdad you shared, and that looking at it from a different lens is what sort of was that light bulb moment for you. I also love that you said none of the ideas that you dreamt up in a conference room with your co-founder is what you actually ended up taking forward. And there's a beautiful, when you talk about the difference between business plan and an academic world and the real world being quite starkly different, I think that's such an important lesson for founders to look at, you know, really look at their own journey. We have founders that are intensely academic or they're in deep science or deep tech and getting out into a customer-facing perspective, pushing those conversations, learning live as opposed to learning in the the classroom. That took some time within your journey. Josh is what it sounds like, but you laid fantastic groundwork. You had this perspective and and really took it to the next level as you stepped out into the real world, if I may. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, I think well summarized. And, you know, what I would say is, um, you know, as as a founder, I think, one of the things that was true for me was that I was I was very attached to my ideas. And 
one of the things that is really scary as a founder is putting your ideas out into the world and taking the chance that people are going to criticize those ideas. It is scary, but it's how you make progress. And actually, the thing that you need to be more worried about, in my opinion, is not that people criticize your idea. It's that people give you the kind of pat on the back. Yeah, that's a good idea without actually thinking critically and without actually giving you the tough feedback that you need. Mm-hmm. And when I think back on my experience, I feel very lucky that I was so supported by friends and family, but I was choosing to hear their voices telling me, of course, Josh, this is going to work. And I should have been listening to them and forcing myself to get in front of customers and really hearing the the voices who were saying, well, you're onto something, but that's not quite right. Because that's the really important feedback to, to help you build something that actually does work. Right, right. Oh, and I love that. So Propel is based in Atlantic Canada. And we are a lot of nice people here. And we tell yeah. founders all the time. <laughs> we tell founders all the time, we have a bit of a problem because everybody's so friendly and supportive. And if you're a founder, they're like, Oh, you're going to be great. And unless you're the customer, that opinion doesn't matter. Support is awesome. But the feedback from your buddies, if they're not your paying customer, you got to filter that and collect the data, focus on the customer, the market data that will enable you to make decisions about going into that market, to validate the market itself from real customers. Totally, totally. And I think even customers, right? Even prospective customers, there's a real hesitation to say, I don't like your idea. So let me give you some examples of feedback that seems positive that is actually a no. Okay. So one example is... Mm, that's interesting. You know, if you, if you build it, come back to me. That's a no. That's an underlying no, a soft that's a no. no. That's, a, that's a nice, yep. encouraging no. Another one, which I actually got a lot, you know, that's not interesting for us, but, you know, it might be useful to that type of company. Also a no. Also a no. <laughs> and the only thing that is a yes is, Oh, I love that. How quickly can I get that? That's a yes. That's a yes. You know, it's hard to come by. And I think what, you know, when I think back to the early days of our journey, you know, there were really two missteps. The first misstep was this notion of collecting feedback from customers. And it just flat out didn't work. People didn't want to provide the feedback. It was kind of classic chicken and egg. We we heard customers say, well, if our supplier asks us for feedback, you know, we might take that seriously and, and provide feedback. And we went to the suppliers and said, hey, why don't you go ask your customers for feedback? And they said, well, how many people are visiting your website and looking at this? And the answer was, well, nobody yet. Yeah. They said, okay, you know, come back. <laughs> so anyways, flat out didn't work. Fortunately, though, when we were going down that path, I was focused on solving a problem that didn't end up being a real problem, which was when we get this avalanche of feedback, right? When everybody around the world is writing reviews and rating their suppliers, how are we going to know that these ratings and and the feedback are coming from people who've actually done business with the supplier? How do we know it's not like the uncle of the, you know, the owner of the supplier that's writing the feedback? And that ended up not being a problem. But in trying to solve that problem, 
I ended up talking to lots and lots of people, one of whom pointed me to a data set that was in the public domain, which was U.S. customs data. Turns out U.S. government, for historical reasons, tracks every shipment that comes into the country and leaves the country. Um, and the historical reasons, namely taxes, right? The customs revenue uh, until the introduction of the income tax was the largest source of revenue for the U.S. government. So tracking what was coming into the country and then applying the appropriate tariff was an important function of government. And all this data was collected and ended up being published under an act of Congress and was essentially in the public domain, but really not being well utilized. And so when I was pointed to this data set, I thought, oh, this is interesting. And as Jim and I started talking it through, we realized, well, you know, this is kind of cool. And this, by the way, was only in the wake of realizing that we weren't getting any feedback. <laughs> as we were, you know, staring that failure in the face, we were thinking about this data set and we thought, you know, we can see if a customer is going back time and time again to the same supplier. And that kind of tells you something. That tells you, you know, that customer loyalty gives you an indication of supplier quality. And we got really excited and we said, okay, this is going to be amazing. We're going to take this data. We're going to put together the Pangeva rating on every supplier in the world. And that's what we took around to customers. And that's when we got the, you know, that's interesting. I don't think that's useful to us, but you know who it might be helpful to is smaller companies. And then they'd go to the smaller companies and they'd say, well, the, it's kind of interesting. I think maybe bigger companies might find this useful. These were just like flat no's. And what I was getting and not paying close enough attention to was the answer from our customers. And the answer was in the form of a question, which was, after we were talking about the rating with customers, people you know, would sometimes inquire, well, how are you coming up with that rating? And what they you know, were saying in a, in a way that I had to you know, read between the lines on was, we don't really trust you. Who are you to come up with a rating? You don't come from the supply chain world. But as they were digging into the, the methodology, they were saying, well, you know, that data underneath the rating is kind of interesting. Like, could you tell me who my competitors are working with? And the first, you know, several times I heard it, I said, no, if we start doing that, you know, that's, going to undermine the trust that we're trying to build with customers. And, you know, we're trying to put together a rating, not just expose some data about who's working with who. But again, we kept getting the polite no's. And eventually we said, well, we are hearing one thing that people would pay for. And it's this competitive intelligence. Maybe we should just, you know, it's not as elegant as we thought, but there's something here. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. And when we started going around and saying, yeah, we've got the raw data and we can show you who your existing suppliers are working with. We can show you who your competitors are working with, and we can synthesize the data in a way that helps you figure out who you should be doing business with. We started getting real yeses. And the real yeses were, yes, I would like to subscribe. Is it ready yet? Fantastic. And that was a, a surprise for you, what it sounds like. You know, you went in with a set of questions, you were expecting certain answers. And then what I would call you were listening live. Mm. You listened to what they were asking you, what the customer's problems were. 
and you weren't necessarily expecting it, but it seemed to gel over time and be consistent enough for you to jump on it pretty concretely is what it sounds like. Absolutely. But it took me too long. Too long. <laughs> it, took me, it took me way too long. Yep. You know, and I think, again, it does, I think in part, come back to the attachment to ideas. Yep. And I, I do think one of the things that is so interesting about the founder journey is that to be successful, we ask founders to do two totally opposite things. The first thing that we tell founders is, you've got to be relentless. You're going to get no's. You've got to keep going. You've got to be stubborn and bring your vision to life. Then we tell founders, you got to be flexible. <laughs> you got to pivot based on what you hear from customers. It's like, okay, right. well, which is it? Like, yeah. are you stubborn or are you flexible? And right. I think the simplest way to break this down, in my opinion, is be stubborn when you're talking to investors. Be flexible when you're talking and listening to your customers. Love it. Every founder's journey is unique. And if you need help taking the next step in yours, contact us at info at propelict.com to go further, faster. What we tell folks at Propel, Josh, is that when they come in, we often see founders come in and they're really, like you said, they're really excited about their ideas. They're really excited about a specific feature on a product. And by the time they complete our program, sometimes a year and a half later, we've seen a mindset shift where they're mm. not talking about their products. They're obsessed with their customers' problems and how they're able to solve them. So what, what we're hearing from you is really fascinating validation that you went through a passion about your ideas and hanging on to them, went through a journey of listening, may, maybe took a little longer, but really learning how to listen to customers live and understand what they needed so that you could then tackle that. I, I want to switch gears a little bit into another question because I, I, I would love your thoughts on this. I want to talk about sales for a second. Yeah. Now you, sa you said to me once upon a time at, at a reunion, Josh, and I'll, no I'll never forget this. You said you didn't realize how important sales was until you became a founder, until you started your, your own company. How important is sales? Sales is, is everything. And I think part of why I undervalued it early in my career is I, I think I had a fundamental misunderstanding of what sales is. In my mind, when I thought of sales, I thought it's convincing people to do something that they don't want to do. I had this image of, you know, the salesman who comes in, and, right? And it was a gendered image, right? But the salesman yep. who comes in and convinces you that this is the right thing to do. And when I, when I reflect on, on my career, one of the best salespeople I, I had the, the opportunity to work with was uh, the CEO of an incubator called iFormation, a guy named David Pico, passed away several years ago. He was a wonderful, wonderful leader. And I didn't realize it at the time, but he was also a fantastic salesperson. And what he was doing in the process of building the business that he was building, and not just, by the way, in, in, in a business context, he was doing it in a not-for-profit context. And I should note also Canadian. Awesome. We like that. We, he was fantastic. <laughs> I, I made many a trip to Toronto with him. But what he was doing was he was listening to people and really understanding what people wanted and then finding a way to give them that, right? Either in the form of, in the for-profit world, you know, the opportunity to invest in something 
that met the needs of their corporate strategy or in the not-for-profit world, the opportunity that people crave to have an impact. He was really understanding what people wanted and then giving them a way to get that. And I didn't recognize that as sales mm-hmm. when, I, when I was first working with David. But um, years later, I can look back on that and say, no, that's sales. Listening to customers, listening to whoever you're talking to, understanding what they want, what they need, and then giving that to them. And when I think about the process of launching a business, right? ultimately, you have to have the courage to say to somebody, I'd like you to pay me for this. And it's in that moment that you're going to get honesty, right? You're going to get an honest answer. And the question of of whether you're going to get a yes or no is whether, you know, comes down to whether you've really understood what it is they're trying to solve for. And if you actually have a solution to their problem, Mm -hmm. it's not about convincing them that this thing that you built is so great, even though they don't think it's great. That's not what sales is. Mm-hmm. It's about finding that overlap between what the customer needs and what you can deliver. You know, there's a, a framing you may remember from business school, which is, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king? Right. <laughs> which was right the the question that's posed to founders. Which, you know, is it's a funny question because it presumes success, right? It's like, well, what kind of success would you like? Would you like money or would you like power, right? Right. And and the truth is, um, you know, if you're successful in a startup, you often do have that choice, right? Do you want to optimize for money? Do you want to optimize for control? But I think in the earliest part of the founder's journey, there's a different question, which is, do you want to be rich or do you want to be right? Mm -hmm. And I see so many founders that just desperately want to be right. They want their original idea to have been right. They'll warp what they're hearing to convince themselves that their original idea was right. And I get it. You know, it was your idea. It was your baby. Maybe you've sold some early investors on that idea. But ultimately, the process of letting go and saying, you know what? I don't have to be right. What I have to do is find a real problem and deliver a real solution, that's when you get on the path to something that actually works. I love how you summarize that. Do you want to be rich or do you want to be right? And one of the things that we talk about at Propel in the early stage program called Vision and Validation is that we want founders to come in and figure out, is there a problem in the market someone is willing to pay to solve? Yep. So to your earlier point, will you pay for this or not? And that will indicate, have I listened or not? And if you have listened well with these sales skills that, as you articulated, aren't often recognized as sales skills, but are inherently fundamental to building these trusting relationships where you learn, you're constantly learning from customers. So the better you're able to listen live, truly understand what they need and figure out, can I solve it? The the more successful you might be as opposed to hanging on to, I'm going to be right. And we have startup coaches at Propel. And they, they will say, look, we've got a founder and they're quite upset because they have invalidated their market. And we see that as a huge success. We're like, that took you less than five months instead of five years of pushing rope up a hill with somebody else's money, trying to prove your point, because that's never going to leave you successful, no matter how you define that. Uh, So we like to lean on data. We like to go for early failure and celebrate it because the entrepreneurial spirit that we're seeing already that's what we lean on and we trust. We're like, you you know how to, you want to be an entrepreneur. That's golden. But let's find you a market 
that you can actually dig into, listen to, and can you solve a problem for them? That's what we're after. So I love your perception on what sales feels like and, and the experience you had with David Pico sounds fantastic. Now, a couple more questions for you, Josh. What would you say is the biggest hurdle a founder will face for some early stage founders who might be listening in? What's the biggest hurdle you would anticipate them facing? I think the, the hardest problems are, frankly, emotional, managing mm-hmm. your own emotions. Because the truth is you are going to hear no over and over again. And that's hard to pick yourself back up. You know, there, there are days when it you know, feels hard to turn on the computer or pick up the phone. It's hard. Once you get going, guaranteed, there are going to be valleys that you have to go through. And how do you keep yourself going? How do you keep yourself balanced through that? It's not easy. And, mm-hmm. and I think some uh, entrepreneurs you know, fail because they run out of cash. I think others fail because they run out of steam because yeah. emotionally it's just too taxing. Yeah, I, I would fully agree. We've adjusted some of our, our programming at, at Propel to do what we call resilience training. Ooh, love that. Yeah, it's it's real. We we actually learned that about 50% of our founders were not stressed. They were burnt out. Interesting. And we thought, how are they supposed to succeed if they're if they're burnt out already? Mm. They need more gas in the tank. They need more steam to your point. How do we help them build up that resiliency? And and that is that you know, managing your emotions. How do you deal with the ambiguity, the rejection, the the tough conversations, the responsibility if you have employees, if you're building a team? I totally agree. That's an incredibly, incredibly large hurdle that that founders have to tackle. Can you talk about any of the lessons that you would have brought from startup number one, Penjiva, over to Nevada, where you are now? Sure. Uh, Nevada, it's been an extraordinary experience. I, I tell people it rhymes with the Penjiva experience, right? right? There's certain things that I can see parallels between that last experience and this experience, but some real differences. And I would say the biggest one is that it's all happening faster Mm -hmm. uh, in a more kind of condensed period of time. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think this is a a company that was founded and backed by a consortium of amazing organizations that put real money to work. And the CEO, Alex Friedman, pulled together a leadership team that is really quite extraordinary. And therefore, very early on, we had some advantages that a typical startup doesn't have. And there was one more advantage that I think has been absolutely pivotal in in allowing this journey to go as fast as it is, which is access to customers. The the folks who were involved um, in the, the founding of the company, Scott Kennedy, president of the company, the investors in the company, extremely well connected in the world of private equity and private credit, which are our initial customer segments. And what that meant was that we were able to get in front of customers very, very quickly. And I I try to tell people not to take for granted how special this is, because in in my last startup at Pangeva, Jim and I had to beg to get customer meetings. And it would be like one a month, right? Here, uh, because we were created in part by the industry that we're trying to serve, we had incredible access to customers who could tell us what they want. Then the question was, were we going to listen? And you can bet 
that based on my experience with Pangeva, I was ready to listen. You were a pro at this point. Totally. And, and, <laughs> and determined to not let the original ideas be things that we were overly beholden to. And I think, I think it's something we got right. And I, just to give you a little bit of, of flavor of that, you know, one of the original ideas behind Nevada was around benchmarking. The mm-hmm. idea that we would go to investors that had collected information about the ESG characteristics of their portfolio companies. So just to unpack the, the terminology, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance factors. So think about a company's carbon footprint or uh, the gender composition of its board. You know, these are things that go beyond profit and loss, but they're metrics that really matter. These are things that I think increasingly both companies and investors are realizing that they need to incorporate into their decision-making processes. We know that um, particularly in the, the, what I would describe as the professionalized private markets, right? The, the companies that are backed by private equity, private credit, there's, I think, a lot of pressure to, to collect uh, ESG information and report on it. So our thesis was, look, we're going to go to these firms and say, hey, give us your data. We'll anonymize it and then serve it back to you in the form of aggregated benchmarks and give people the context to know what the data that they're collecting means. And then in what I would think of as a bit of an echo to my Pangeva experience, we went around and people said, well, that sounds great, but we don't have the data. Oh, even to begin with. There you go. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I've seen this one before. Looks familiar. And you know, what we found was that people were even earlier in their journey and, and what they needed was help in collecting the data. And we knew that that was a problem that we could solve. And it wasn't an easy problem to solve, but uh, empowering companies that maybe had never even heard the acronym ESG mm-hmm. uh, certainly didn't know how to calculate these metrics around you know, carbon accounting or waste, water management. You know, these these are, are pretty specific things. And uh, a lot of companies don't know how to calculate them. And we built a platform that makes it as easy as possible for people to collect that information, um, either about themselves or um, from their portfolio companies. And we've you know, gone through this journey in, in a pretty quick period of time. So we're about a year and a half in and uh, a little less than a year uh, since we launched the product. And we've got over 50 investors that collectively have about uh, 2,600 underlying companies that are reporting on the platform, all moving very, very quickly in a way that is a lot of fun and is different than the Pangeva mm-hmm. experience, but it does rhyme. <laughs> yeah. So the clear lessons. And I love that we're hearing you talk about how fast you've been able to move because of, and what I heard you say is the importance of team, the importance of the leaders that were brought together and their network. So access to customers. Something that we're seeing at Propel, Josh, is a trending of founders who are taking the founder plunge later in life. So Mm. 40% of our founders, we serve about 100 companies a year right now, are over the age of 40. Great age, by the way. But And it's not to focus on, on age, it's to celebrate their experience. So they have seen a market, they've been in an industry 
and they're inherently very frustrated with a specific problem that hasn't been addressed, but their access to customers, to your point, is very different than if they had just come out of uh, undergrad or, or their grad school. So really, really neat to hear you talk about how it rhymes. You know, your experience at Penjiva has been brought over to Nevada. You're incredibly focused on ESG and empowering uh, the private markets with this incredible data that they not only need to learn how to track and collect the data, but will clearly inform how, how they grow and, and leveraging the diversity that I think your knowledge will bring. couple more questions. Josh, if your children said to you, dad, I want to start a company, what advice would you give them? Or would you let them start a company? <laughs> As if you can control that. You know, I, as you ask the question, I'm thinking back to my journey of getting to the the decision that I was actually going to move forward with Jim to start Panjiva. It was a process of me asking everybody for advice. Right? I went around to everybody and said, "Hey, do you think I should do this or not?" And I saved the the last conversation for an entrepreneur who I really respected, uh, my brother in law, and I went to him and I. I said, you know, I'm thinking about starting this business. I want to get your advice on whether I should do it. And he said, why would you do that? (laughs) Why would you? He said, I had no choice. Nobody would give me a job. I had to start a company. You, you can get jobs. What are you doing? You're employable. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And, and the truth was that actually, in retrospect, I think was actually a really important part of my, my journey because I had to realize that it wasn't about other people's advice. It was about what was inside. And when I got his feedback, my response was, no, I'm going to do it. And yeah, that, that felt very empowering that it was about me. It wasn't about following you know, one particular person's advice. But today... If my children asked me, um, I think my answer would be, don't just start one, start go. multiple and plan on starting multiple. And I think part of it is it's, you know, you learn from each experience, but I also think there's something important about in your first startup experience, not letting yourself be totally wrapped up for, in terms of your identity in that startup. It is just this thing you're working on now. It's not who you are as a person. The more you think of it as who you are as a person, the more you're going to be too attached to the original idea. And and frankly, you're going to have a harder time with the emotional side of it. And this isn't pure speculation. This is my experience the first (laughs) time around. Um, So I'd say go for it, but but start more than one. And, and, And one last thing that I would say is, Life is short. Work with people who you both admire and like. There are a couple of people. There's one uh, that I'm thinking of, Lauren Pete, who worked with me at Panjiva. And now I have the opportunity to work with her again at, at Nevada. And she's you know, one of these people. Her superpower is identifying the overlap between mm-hmm. what a customer wants and what you can sell. But she's also just a great person to be around. And Mm -hmm. when those dark moments come, candidly, it's not going to be the mission or your idea that sustains you. It's going to be the people that you're surrounded by. 
I love that. So I feel like we need to print some t-shirts with a quote by Josh Green that says, don't just start one. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that is fantastic advice. I cannot wait to see what your children decide to tackle. As well, your thoughts that you know you observe from your, your friend and colleague, Lauren, work with people you admire and like. I also yeah. have heard the same advice applied to marriage. Hmm a partner that you admire and that they inspire you or then that you like. So really important, spend time with those kind of people. Good things happen. You enjoy that journey together, be it a partnership, colleagues, where you spend most of your waking hours or even sort of building out your family. Last question for you, Josh, what are some of your daily habits that keep you motivated? Being a founder is tough you know, the responsibility on your shoulders is, is not insignificant. What do you do every day to keep, keep getting up and working hard? It's a great question. And, and I, I, I wish that I had a great answer. I, I've always marveled at these, you know, here's my morning routine. I meditate for 20 minutes and then I, you know, then I take, you know, I drink my green drink and, you know, then I have energy for days. And, I'm, <laughs> you know, to me, I'm like either waking up in the middle of the night because I'm stressed about some problem that I'm wrestling with, or I'm totally annoyed by the alarm going off because I just want to sleep more. So the like daily habits thing, I can't actually claim that I've cracked. Maybe later I'll get to. What I would say, though, is that, you know, if I'm really honest with myself, and I think back to my, my first startup journey, there was a lot of it that was about making my parents proud and more than I, I think I realized at the time. In my second startup journey, it's not my parents that motivate me, it's my children. You know, when I thought about the type of company that I wanted to be involved in, one of the criteria that I had was it, it needed to be a company that had the potential to have a positive impact on the world because that's um, that's what I want to do for my kids and you know for for people and for the planet and and it's you know people and the planet pretty abstract your kids my kids it's very tangible and one of the best parts of the day is taking my son to the bus in the morning you know then saying goodnight to my daughter and tucking in her stuffed animals interestingly she recently gave me two of her stuffed animals that. She encouraged me to sleep with in case I got scared in the middle of the night. She's very thoughtful. Very, very thoughtful. Yep. Um, but it's that's what keeps me going is I um, wake up and spend time with the people that I love. And I think I want to do something great to make them proud and, and hopefully leave the world a little bit better off for them and everybody else as well. Well, I thank you personally for your efforts in doing just that. I love that you've had two fantastic startup experiences. One continues today that have taken a generational leap from making your parents proud to building a legacy for your children to be proud of, which I trust fully uh, that is going to come to fruition and, and continue to do so. Josh, as we, as we wrap up, is there anywhere we can direct our audience if they want to learn a little bit more about Novada and what you're, what you're doing? Absolutely. Novada.com. That's N-O-V-A-T-A dot com. And of course, uh, we're trying to get customers uh, via the website, but we also have a lot of great information about metrics that matter, ESG and efforts by business to take responsibility for 
their communities and, and the planet. So lots of good stuff there, both for customers and non-customers alike at Novada.com. Okay. Thank you so much. Everybody check that out, Novada.com. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks for having me, Catherine. And thanks for inspiring the entrepreneurs that you're working with. I think um, you're doing really important work because entrepreneurs are problem solvers and there are a lot of problems that need solving. I totally agree. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to Founder Journeys by Propel ICT. Propel ICT is Atlantic Canada's e-accelerator for tech startups. Are you a founder looking to build on sales and marketing skills, reach and engage with the right customers and ultimately find success? Our coaches are eager and excited to help you and your business go further, faster. To learn more about us and our team, visit PropelICT.com. Propel ICT, where founders become leaders.